Please open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. It can be safely said that in all times and in every place, God's people have lived in trying times. We are living in times of extreme upheaval, hacking at the roots of the very foundation on which our society was built. Wrong is routinely called right. Right is routinely reamed as being wrong. And we, it's not an overstatement. We live in a time of serious injustice and horrible atrocities. We basically see 2 Timothy chapter 3 coming true before our eyes, being lived out before our very eyes. Evil men and imposters are proceeding from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, against the trying backdrop of terribly ungodly times, whether that be 610 B.C. in Habakkuk's age or today, what Habakkuk says hits where we live. And I just want to let you know right now, we're going to talk about the wrath of God today. I know you're like, man, give me some, like, comfort, you know? Give me some love. Give me some mercy. That'll be next week. The ultimate mocking of the proud, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Habakkuk spells out a, an answer uh, to human's sin in, that is both frightening on one hand and, and actually comforting on the other. There will be some comfort today, okay? Now the key word in this passage is going to be will or shall. These things will happen because God says they will happen. So if you're able, please stand with me to read God's word. That's what we do here at Grace. I realize some of you can't stand, and I know that you would if you could. Uh, we just want to be reverent to God and his word, and whether you sit or stand, you can still be reverent in your heart. I, I'm going to read the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. I'm going to read Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through 20. Verse 6, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory, 
drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Lord, I almost don't want to pray. I thank you, Lord, for your holiness. Thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would have your, your way in our hearts today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so if you're new to grace or you forgot what we did the last two weeks, I want to give you a little bit of review so far in Habakkuk. Where have we come? Where have we been? So verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, we saw that justice was absent from the land, violence and wickedness were going unchecked, that, that the people of Israel were living in sin. And so Habakkuk prays and cries out to God and asks God to intervene. And he's basically saying, God, why are you letting them go unjudged? And God responds and he says, I'm not going to let them go unjudged forever. I'm going to send the wicked Chaldeans to judge them. And what we learned in that first segment really was that God's ways are routinely misunderstood. They are mysterious. They're hard to understand. And they are magnificent. God's ways are magnificent. And we need to trust God who is merciful. Now, the big idea really is that you need to trust God, you need to live by faith, because God is merciful. Now last week, we looked at chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 5, and what we saw was that the answer that God gave Habakkuk created a bigger dilemma in Habakkuk's heart and mind, because now he's asking the question, well, wait a minute, God, hold on a minute, time out. How can you use a nation more wicked than us to discipline us? How can this be? Reminds us of cosmic questions like, why does God allow evil? And how does God fit into history? And how do we follow by faith in the midst of all the things we see? We saw that living by faith in God's character, we must rehearse familiar truths. That we must cling to the word of God and, and remind ourselves of what God is like. And receive eternity-altering truth, such as chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith, that golden gem, that jewel, really, that God hid in Habakkuk, that gospel summary is so beautiful. But we saw last week that our continuing in Christ as Christians is contingent on the character of God. It's not contingent on us, but on him and his faithfulness. And so now we move on to 
Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through 20, and what we see is that God is going to ultimately right all wrongs, okay? So all the things you're seeing, his justice will prevail. The Chaldeans, and here's what we see about the Chaldeans. So we know that they were going to be the sovereignly chosen, appointed instruments of God to discipline his people, but we also see here that they are also responsible before God for their sin. They aren't off the hook. They can't say, well, wait a minute, God, God put us up to this. No, they put themselves up to their evil. And what this passage serves to do today is really to uh, spell out in large capital letters, it's shouting to us a, a solidary truth that is both startling in its scope and terrifying in its application, as well as bringing some comfort to the believer. Two thoughts combined. This is our two-point outline for today. Number one, God's wrath will be poured out on sin. And number two, his purposes will prevail in Christ. That God will punish the unrepentant sinner and his purposes will prevail in spite of enemies. This should bring comfort to the believer. So in the, in the prophet's first prayer, he's asking God, you know, even personally, he's saying, how am I going to endure all this injustice that's going on? Your own people are perpetrating it. God's first answer uncovers this brutal incoming invasion of Judah about to come from Babylon in response to their sin. And then in his second prayer, which began in chapter 1, verse 12, he boldly asks God, again, how can you let the wicked triumph over those less wicked? And what we are, I want you to know where we're at because we're starting in, in chapter 2, verse 6, but we are in the midst of God's second answer to Habakkuk, which started in chapter 2, verse 2. Just keep mindful of that. The answer that God gives, really from chapter 2, verse 2, all the way to the end of this chapter, contains the key to history. The key to reading all of history. But the first point we have to make, because it's so blatant right in our face, is God's wrath is going to be poured out on sin. It is going to happen. His justice demands sin be punished. So we shouldn't be surprised. Now there is a great conflict raging in the earth, in all the earth, a clash between the two parties that are outlined in chapter 2, verse 4. The proud and the humble. The arrogant boastful that have assert themselves against God and the righteous who put their trust in God. So, all through history, you see it happen over and over and over again. God is resisting the proud and giving grace to the humble. The same principle applies to these raging Babylonian bullies, really, and, and to every swaggering power on earth or every swaggering person on earth who, who proudly lifts themselves up against the knowledge of God. It's sobering. Uh, look over at verse 5. We looked at this last week a bit, but verse 5 says, wine is a traitor. And you might think, why are we talking about wine here? Wine is a traitor, an arrogant man is never at rest, and goes on, and how they're heaping up peoples for themselves. It's because Babylon was known for its excessive use of alcohol, and their drunken reveling. And so their pride, which was bad enough alone, was now getting, you know, propped up by means of intoxicated passion. And on the night, on the very night in the future that they were conquered, their leaders were in the palace in a drunken orgy. 
Because their desires were unquenchable as death in the grave, verse 5 tells us, and they continue to heap up captive nations and plunder them. And so what God is doing here in his justice is saying, okay, Babylon is, is going to be used by me to discipline my people, yes, and they are sentenced to shameful mocking for their sin. He's going to mock the mockers. That's what God is doing here. Now, Earlier in Israel's history, a giant defied the Jews and challenged them to send someone to fight him. And he defied the armies of Israel and in the process defied God. And he was a massive man with mammoth armor and he's mocking God. You might remember this story. And no one does anything about it. No one. They're, just, they're like shaking in their boots, so we, we, we're afraid we're not going to do anything. They're just standing there, watching, day after day. And a young lad steps out of the shadows, dressed as a shepherd, and he says to the giant, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. Today, God will strike you down. Today, God will deliver you into my hand. In fact, today I'm going to behead you. I'm going to cut your head off. You'll die. And here you have the proud being mocked by the humble. Now, the passage we're in today is similar. Habakkuk 2, 6-20 is similar. God gives the answer to Habakkuk's prayer. And in a series of five mocking statements, God gives the consequences that's going to come upon Babylon. Details of a predetermined fate of the unbelieving proud. God has said, my ways are my own. I'm, I'm going to, in my own timing, take care of the problem. Now, the Babylonians were high-handedly arrogant against God. They worshipped God's gifts granted by common grace. Verse 4 tells us their soul is puffed up, not upright, not right with God. Now, what God's going to say is they're going to get nothing less and nothing more than they deserve. They're going to be hugely humbled. I want you to notice the word woe, because you see it five times in this passage. The word woe, verse 6, 9, 12, 15, and 19, doesn't exactly mean woe. Okay, now, we've heard people use the word woe in the past. It's spelled differently, like the Fonz used to say woe, you know? That's not it, okay? If you've seen some of those old shows. Um, but, and sometimes we're like, whoa, that's awesome. This is not it either. Woe is an expression that God uses to introduce a statement of judgment. And it doesn't exactly mean woe as we might know it. We think, oh, it's just a bad thing coming. Like, oh, woe is, is me, right? Woe is me. I've got so much you know, homework and term papers, and I've got so much uh, work to do this weekend, and I was supposed to relax this weekend. Woe is me. Or even to the most serious of things of, I've got cancer. Woe is me. Or I'm... I, I, I can't do the things I used to be able to do. Woe was me. And, and we think, oh, I've just got a, a, got a bad lot in life. That's not what this is getting at. What this is getting at is it's more like, ha, on you. Um, it's, it's a tone of mockery and taunting. You can't, you can't miss this. God is mocking and taunting this evil nation. He's not just saying, hey, by the way, it's going to be bad for you, and you're going to have to deal with it. He's laughing at, like Psalm 2 says, God just laughs at the nations. So, so here's, here's the first woe. There's five woes. Let's go for the first one, verses 6 through 8. 
basically God's saying, woe to the greedy empire builder. Verse 6, all these will take up their taunt against him. All the nations that you messed with are going to come back and taunt you with scoffing and riddles and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, loading himself with pledges. Verse 7, your debtors will suddenly arise, will make you tremble, and you'll be spoiled for them. So the tables are going to get turned here. Verse 8, the many nations you plundered will plunder you. And, and there's a repeated reason here. You'll see it there in verse 8. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, jump over to verse 17. The repeated reason. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And, and, and one of the first you know, truths of Bible interpretation. If you say, I want to know what, what it says and what it means. A lot of people will say, well, it means whatever it means to me. No, it means what it means to God. It, every place in Scripture, the, the first principle, really, of Bible interpretation is one interpretation, many applications, but one interpretation. So when God, my, my task as a preacher is not to say, hey, here's what I think. Hey, everybody, I've been thinking about it all week, and here's what it means to me. Uh, my task is to say, here's what God meant. As close as I can get to it, here's what God was getting at. So there would be no confusion and we wouldn't, you know, come up with all sorts of weird heresies. <laughs> and, and here, there's a repeated reason for, for the, the shame that's going to come upon them. And even, even though there's one interpretation, many times in the Old Testament, especially in the, pro, in the prophets, and remember, we're in the minor prophets, there's 12 of those, and then the major prophets, there's five of those, 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament. The, the major ones are the bigger books, the minor ones are the smaller books. We're in Habakkuk. And there are sometimes in the prophetic books a, a double meaning using rhyming words in Hebrew. And you wouldn't see this in your English Bibles, but there are rhyming words in Hebrew in these woes. And it reinforces the strength of what is being said. So when God is repeating things and even using rhyming words in the original language, he's saying, you cannot deny what I am saying. You can dismiss it if you'd like, but you cannot hide from it. It's going to happen. And there was going to be some poetic justice here, uh, speaking of rhyming words, that were going to haunt the Babylonians for years. Proverbs twenty-two sixteen says, He who oppresses the poor to multiply for himself shall surely lack necessities. Proverbs thirteen eleven: Wealth which comes by questionable ways will shrink to nothing. And that's God's verdict on every proud mocker in history, not just the Babylonians. God is pointing the finger and crying out, ha ha, the plunderer is plundered. Instant sudden judgment. Proverbs 6.15, in an instant shall disaster come to the wicked, suddenly he'll be destroyed without hope of healing. Proverbs 29.1, the man who stiffens his neck against many warnings shall be broken suddenly without hope of healing. So for cruel violence done to the whole creation, they will be judged. God says, woe to the greedy empire builder. That's the first woe. Would you like to go on? Is that enough? It's going to build, by the way. It's just going to build, okay? We've got to get through five of these. Number two, woe number two. Woe to the selfish exploiter, verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. They're, they're trying to make their cities safe from their enemies. Here's the biggest enemy of all, and they're trying to be safe. Verse 10, you created shame for your house. 
You cut off many peoples. You forfeited your life. Their leaders were counseling to kill. They were an army of serial killers, basically. And they shamed themselves. They harmed their souls. They, they premeditated their exploitation, and it was born out of covetousness. Verse 11 says, the stone will cry out from the wall. You might be thinking, wait, didn't Jesus say something like that? If, if these don't praise me, the stones will cry out? Here what it means is the stone will cry out from the wall, the beam from the woodwork respond, the walls of their own houses, which they built with stuff they stole from other people, are going to witness against them. Their refuge is going to crumble, they're going to they're try to make their dynasty secure, but whatever they build is going to collapse. Woe to the selfish exploiter. As Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord will destroy the proud. Second woe. Third woe. Woe to the arrogant slave driver. Verses 12 through 14. They're ruthless, by the way. They built their luxurious palaces on the backs of forced labor and bloodshed. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood, founding a city on sin. 13, peoples labor merely for fire. Nations weary themselves for nothing. Verse 14, the earth, and here's God's answer, embedded right here, in the woe, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So in contrast to the self-exalting Chaldeans whose efforts will come to zero, or less than zero, God promises that the whole earth will recognize his glory at the establishment of his kingdom at some point in the future. Now we're going to come back to this verse 14. But on the same woe, Isaiah 33, 1 says this, Ah, destroyer, when you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed, and when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. So all their efforts will come to nothing. They build their towns and cities by bloodshed, and just like the nations do now, uh, they have a, a human-centered mindset. Uh, secularism, by the way, leads to materialism and hedonism and all the other harmful isms, and God's going to burn it all down. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. But woe to the, the arrogant slave driver. Now, woe number four, verses 15 through 17. We're going to keep, keep going with these quickly here. Woe to the shameful demoralizer. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath, making them drunk, to gaze at their nakedness. They didn't just want to, to use them, they wanted to abuse them. He says, you're going to have your fill of shame instead of glory. You know, we say to people, you know, shame on you for that. Shame on you for doing that. Well, God's saying, shame on you and you will have your fill of it. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Now God is really taunting them because the word refers to foreskin, indicates greatest contempt. It's the sign of being an alien from God. Not one of God's people. Verse 16 says, the cup in the Lord's right hand is going to come around to you. Utter shame is going to come on your glory. It's a metaphor for God's retribution, served up by his powerful right hand. What they did will come upon them. Shame on your glory. It's a metaphor of drunkenness, humiliation of literally shameful um, spewing. They're going to they're gonna throw up with the wrath that comes on them. Babylon's glory is going to become their shame. They're going to be forced to drink the cup of the Lord's fury and publicly, like publicly shamed. What could be worse than that, right? Being embarrassed in public. One of my biggest fears as a kid happened a bunch of times. <laughs> we won't go into that today. Let's keep on going to verse 17. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. So will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man, there's the repeated 
There's the repeated reason. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Repeat. You know, they plundered Lebanon, Lebanon cedars for selfish gain, but they also slaughtered people wholesale. So they're going to be shamed publicly. They who celebrated wildly, entertaining themselves at others' expense, they were disgusting in their reveling, and they're going to be despised by the multitudes. And more importantly, in the last judgment, they will be despised by God. So woe to the shameful demoralizer. And the last woe, number five, woe to the foolish idolater. So this just builds up to this crescendo here, verses 18 and 19. Their destruction is going to demonstrate God's superiority over all false gods. Verse 18, what prophet is an idol shaped by man, a metal image, a teacher of lies, its maker trusts in his own creation. You know, you had an art project and now you're going to worship it. You made a speechless idol. It's a craft. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, a silent stone, arise. And, and God says, awake and arise. It's sarcasm like Elijah used with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Verse, uh, 1 Kings 18. It's like, oh, by the way, um, maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe you should go wake him up. Oh, maybe you should go look for him. Maybe he's in the restroom. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's on vacation. Why don't you go find him? And they're mocking, and this is what God's doing to them. Jeremiah 10, 14 says, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. His images are false. There is no breath in them. So why are you taking these things and acting as if they're real? What are the foolish idolater? What we're seeing here is that God raises up nations, and God puts down nations and rulers. You take the Babylonians. You think, oh, the Babylonians, man, they were bad. They were wicked. They were really, oof. You know, they must have been like this for a long time. Well, here's the deal. This powerful nation of Babylonians rose and fell quickly. About 20 years earlier, no one even knew who they were. No one knew their name. They weren't on the grid. <laughs> they, they, were, they were literally a virtually non-existent entity that then rose up, God rose them up to capture uh, the capital in 614. They became the world rulers of Babylonia, Syria, Assyria, Palestine, Egypt, but 20 years earlier, no one knew them. Now, they just as quickly fell. They were easily overcome by Cyrus, king of Persia, in 539, just in time for the prophecy of Jeremiah concerning Israel to return in 70 years, fulfilled that. But indeed, awesome are the ways of God among the nations. John Calvin said, not by their own instinct, but by the hidden impulse of God, do the nations rise and fall. And I think the truly frightening thing for us who live in America, I think we like to, you know, I think I, I wouldn't mind just closing the blinders and putting some rose-colored glasses on and just saying, you know, everything's great. But think about it just for a moment. I mean, I'm waving my American flag. I got one, I got one on my truck, you know. Uh, I got a sticker with the American flag on it. You know, I, I'm an American. I, I love America. But let me just say, we have been very highly privileged to have a history of forefathers knowing the glory of God and the privilege of serving God's purposes and spreading the knowledge of the glory of God as over much of the earth. America has sent out a lot of missionaries, a lot of people that for gospel purposes want to go out. But here is what I have noticed, and I know you've noticed it too, and it's a creeping human pride and intellect, and, and you can go all the way back to the Enlightenment and say this is just backwash from the Enlightenment. Oh, you know, man by human re reason 
can really work his way to God or even just be his own God? You gotta be kidding. But that's the water we've been drinking. In fact, uh, and this is no, no offense to anyone, but if you've, been, if you've been born in the last 30 years, this is the water that you've been given to drink. And, and many Christians won't deny it. Me, I'm old. You know, I'm 54, so I know a little bit about, about the, 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 let's not call it the creeping human pride and intellect. Let's call it a steamroller now. Can we just call it a steamroller? An increase in the challenge on all fronts to the knowledge of God and his glory. An increase in attempts to eclipse God's significance. Human pride pushing Jesus at best into the corner. Our society, and here's the frightening thing for Americans, is, is reliving the tragic, self-destructive tendencies of ancient civilizations like Greece and Rome, who trusted in themselves that they were strong. This should shake us to the core and drive us to the word of God. James Boyce had a, had a commentary on Psalm 125 where he quoted Thomas Cahill, who was actually writing about how the Irish, I'm part Irish by the way, uh, how the Irish were used in history, but he was writing about the fall of, of the Roman Empire. I know I always say I'm Italian, but my, my dad recently told me, you, you need to be honest. <laughs> You're half Italian. I'm like, I know, but doesn't everyone wish they were 100%? Anyway, um, I'm part Irish, the Irish are great. Um, but, but Thomas Cahill was writing about the fall of the Roman Empire. And, and here's what he said. It sounds eerily like what we're dealing with today. Here's what he said. The change in character of the native population. The creation of an increasingly unwieldy and rigid bureaucracy whose own survival becomes an overriding goal. The despising of the military. Lip service paid to values long dead. The pretense that we are still what we once were. The increasing concentration of the populace into richer and poorer by way of a corrupt tax system. And the desperation that inevitably follows. Ineffectual legislation promulgated with great show while growing blind to the cruel dilemmas of ordinary life. These are the problems that were plaguing the Romans before the collapse of their civilization in the early 400s. No wonder you feel unsettled. <laughs> No wonder you might have a pit in your stomach when you think about where things are hurtling there. Institutions suppressing the truth and unrighteousness without apology. Romans 1.18, by the way. Professing to be wise, they have become fools. Romans 1.22. As Jesus said, John 3.20, everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. Increasing hostility to truth means God is going to give them up to the uncleanness in the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, Romans 1.24. God's wrath being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We basically have Romans 1 being lived up out in front of our very eyes. Moral decay eats away the strength of nations and they fall prey to violent evil empires. And after that, comes the judgment at God's throne. That's the judgment we ought to fear. This calls for serious repentance. You know, again, can we talk about mercy? Can we talk about love? Can you comfort me, please? 
This calls for serious repentance, not just nationwide, but individually in our own hearts, starting with us right now. I'm convinced of it. Walter Chantry said this, and we should be taking note of this as well. God stands in no need of us. He will accomplish his grand purpose with or without us. It is the pride of humanism and the rejection of divine revelation which we must shake off or God will seriously shake our nations. Enchantry was talking about England and America. God's wrath will be poured out on sin. We have to take note of it and we have to receive it. We can't hide from it. But let's get to the second point. God's purposes will prevail. His purpose of grace will be unhindered by his enemies. The wicked degrade the glory of God and create imaginary gods, but God, look at verse 20. Just go to verse 20. God is in his holy temple. That, that's referring to heaven from where God rules and answers the prayers of those who seek him. And, and it says that God is in his holy temple, so all the earth should be quiet. The earth should shut up. Now, in contrast to the silence of the idols, the, the living sovereign ruler of the universe calls all the earth to be silent before him. None can assert autonomy. All the earth must worship in humble submission. Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. It is from his heavenly throne that his eyes behold, his gaze examines humankind. Be silent, all people, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Zechariah says this, it, it, because he's coming in judgment. Zephaniah says, be silent before the Lord God, because he's the judge. Now Habakkuk was, was attempting, I said this is the prayer, journey of, the prayer journal of a burdened man. And he was really wanting to understand God's mysterious ways. How a holy God could deal with such sinful people. And now he is standing in the presence of the Lord's holy temple, hushed in reverential awe. And he may not have fully grasped the implications way back then, but what he was assured of was, was the lordship of God, the absolute abiding lordship of God. That he reigns in sufficiency, that any idle man trusts in for security will fail that the object of our true trust must be the Lord because he does not fail and he is in his heavenly temple, the real recipient of worship, able to answer prayer and carry out his promises. He is the only one we can trust in. For Babylon, in the moment of their greatest need, everyone turned their backs. No one would help them. And here is God on his throne sitting in judgment. This is heavenly courtroom language, you lawyers out there. This is courtroom language. This is Job 1. This is Isaiah 6. This is Habakkuk 2. When the judge is about to pronounce the sentence, you, you can hear a pin drop, right? Everyone's waiting. What's the verdict? And this applies to every inch of the globe. Let all the earth be silent before him in trusting awe and respectful worship. Go over to verse 14. I told you we'd come back to it. I'm keeping my promise. Sandwiched between indictments on Babylon, God explains why all this must happen. Verse 14, the knowledge of God's glory will fill the earth as water covers the sea, which means completely covered, uh, completely drenched with it, completely 
encapsulated by it. And this, by the way, was not the first time that God spoke these words through his prophets. Numbers chapter 14. The people of Israel are refusing to enter the promised land at that time. They have this plan. They're going to choose a leader in place of Moses to take them back to Egypt, of all places, where they were in slavery. And so God curses them with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until all the rebellious ones died. And Numbers 14, 21, God said, Truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And then, through Isaiah, he said, Isaiah 10, 33, Those of high stature will be hewn down, they'll be mowed down like grass. The haughty will be humbled. In contrast to a, a branch that's going to be growing out of the root of Jesse, the branch, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and his kingdom are described like this. Isaiah eleven nine. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I, I just love tie-ins in the Bible where you're like, Habakkuk was thinking about that? Or Isaiah was thinking of the same thing? The Holy Spirit had them both say the same thing. And God is angling towards something here. That he has set a termination point on human history. There's a terminus point. When the story is completely told, everyone is going to see how at every event and in every era, God used things to serve his eternal purposes. So I don't want any of you saying today, uh, I just little old me, it doesn't matter what I think, say, or do. Because that could give us license to do all sorts of things, right? No, what you think, say, and do actually really, really matters because God is watching everything we think, say, and do. Every word of God continues to have profit, 2 Timothy 3.16, through every age, in contrast to the profitlessness of idols. That can help. And then Jesus Christ, under the new covenant, speaks of the cup that the Father gave him. You know when Jesus said, that the cup I'm going to drink? He's echoing these ideas that God's wrath is going to be poured out on sin, and his purposes will prevail. The wrath of God against mankind's shameful sin finds ultimate fulfilling in the outpouring of God's wrath upon his own son. So as repulsive as wrath may appear, you're like, oh, can we not talk about wrath today? It's a biblical reality that finds an awesome expression as the son of God suffered in our place, took our sin upon himself, drank the cup of the fury of the wrath of God against our sin. That's substitutionary atonement, people. Putrid shame exchanged for God's glory. So Jesus gives us a cup of blessing instead. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29, the cup of blessing that we bless is a cup of blessing. Wrath to blessing. Because God is going to right all wrongs and God's enemies will not thwart his purposes and they will be fulfilled in Christ. His purposes will be fulfilled in Christ. What thrills my soul the most about this passage is, are, are the rays of merciful gospel light that are emerging from the clouds of God's wrath. Because God's glory, this is what God says is going to happen, God's glory will be so evident and all-encompassing that it's going to overtake everything. Like the waters cover the sea. Now at this time we do not see all things under Christ's feet, do we? But it will happen, sure as the promises of God. God's ultimate answer to human pride in all its forms is Jesus Christ 
who said, by the way, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, I am gentle and humble in heart. Of Christ's coming, it was said, Isaiah 40, verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In Isaiah 40, verse 9, the prophets were told to say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The gospel of, of, of Jesus Christ is a gospel of glory, not of shame. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, God speaks of the splendor of this glory. Glory speaks of God's splendor and greatness. And the glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. Christ is the very image of God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory in the express image of his person, Hebrews 1, 3. And John 1, 14 says, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The knowledge of Christ, by God's determination, will cover the entire earth. Seen by every nation, Psalm 2 again. God laughs at those nations in rebellion against him and his Messiah. In defiance of them, God sends, sets his king in Zion and promises him the nations as an inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession. This is what will happen. Don't be, don't be fooled by what you're seeing right now. Don't think this is the end. Jesus rules and reigns over all. Now here's what's happening right now. Satan, the God of this world, is blinding people so they will not see the glory of God in the face of Christ. God who commanded light to shine out of darkness will shine on multitudes of his choosing and give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in Christ. God says the, the knowledge of his glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Right now, God is still using a great missions movement to take his glorious gospel to the ends of the earth. Because in Christ, faith triumphs over sin and pride. You trust in him, it will conquer your self-reliance. You're struggling with yourself. You're struggling with how sinful your tendencies are. Trust in Jesus. <laughs> Next week, we're going to take a deeper look at mercy. But today, we rest on the most uncomfortable of subjects, God's wrath against sin. So if you ask me, so how then should I live the rest of my day today? How do I anticipate a day when God's wrath is poured out without relishing the people's destruction who are going to be destroyed? Let me just say a couple things, then we'll, then we'll be done. Number one, weep for the lost while at the same time rejoicing in God's triumph over evil. You can do them both at the same time. Weep for the lost while rejoicing in God's triumph over evil. Praise the glories of God's grace in Christ. Know the certainty of his divine judgment and his wrath poured out on those who reject him. But don't be hateful. Don't be hateful. And, and I think we don't realize this so many times. I'm going to turn this on you a little bit. We go soft on wrath because we don't want to offend somebody. The most hateful thing to do when you're sharing the gospel with someone is not tell them about the wrath of God against their sin. We leave out the blood of Christ so often in our gospel presentations. It's not just that Jesus loves you and wants you to have a great life. Don't keep the medicine away from the dying people. The other thing is, um, you need to call people to faith and repentance. Again, it's not just God loves you, turn to Christ. You didn't tell me anything just then. You told me something, but you didn't give me enough. Do all you can to call people to faith and repentance. Care for their souls because God cares for their souls. 
We've got these cards, these gospel cards. It tells us very clearly God's the righteous creator. Man is the sinner. Christ is the savior. Faith and repentance. Because judgment is going to fall on the ungodly unless they repent and believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But we need to beware of slipping into or staying in ungodly ways. I'll just say it again. Your, your thoughts, your words, and your actions and choices are much more important than you imagine because God takes note of them and keeps record of them. And if not for his mercy, who would stand, right? D.L. Moody survived the devastating Chicago fire of 1871. Described the scene afterwards. He said, as the flames rolled down our street, destroying everything in their onward march, I saw the great and the honorable, the learned and the wise, fleeing before the fire with the beggar and the thief and the harlot, all the world alike. As the flames swept through the city, it was like the judgment day. Neither the mighty man nor the wise man could stop the flames. They were all on the same level then, and many who were worth hundreds of thousands were left paupers that night. When the day of judgment comes, there will be no difference. All sinners will suffer. There is a process of pardon. There is a declaration of guilt. We, we know ourselves guilty in the presence of a, of a holy God, and we need to admit that and, and realize that Jesus is the one who absorbed all the wrath against our sin. The payment was made. You know, we have, don't we have big issues with presidential pardons? A president comes to the end of his term and he says, I'm gonna pardon all these people, and we're like, oh, we can't believe he pardoned all these bad people. Well, I think sometimes we don't wanna share the gospel with some people because we don't want that person to become a Christian. We don't want them left off the hook. We wanna keep poking pins in their voodoo doll. <laughs> you have issues with who God chooses to pardon? Be silent before him. And lastly, let me just say, this passage makes it so clear. Worship God in every aspect of your life, especially as you pray. It is good to saturate your prayer with words that remind you of what God is like from the word of God. God, you are everlasting, you are holy, you are good, you are kind, and, and you glorify him in, a, in an adoring way. This is what Habakkuk has been doing as he prays. James Roscup, one of my seminary profs, Back in the day, said, this is not an insulting prayer, but communion. Honestly concerned about God's beauty being upheld and his people helped in a way that is according to his virtues. In chapter 2, the Lord says much to put the heart at ease about the fairness and pureness of his actions. His plan is calculated, coming, certain, encouraging trust, just toward the guilty, and summoning hushed respect. No wonder his prophet is so filled with the vision of him in his final chapter. Because next week, what we'll see is that Habakkuk begins to sing. You pray with fervency for God to open up hearts to the gospel. Weep over the lost state of those rejecting Christ and appeal to all who live to run to Christ who is life itself. Walter Marshall was an English preacher used greatly by God in pastoral ministry. He wrote a little book called The Gospel Ministry of Sanctification. But when he was younger, he was greatly distressed by the, the state of his soul and he knew he was guilty before God and he dreaded God's displeasure. His heart was filled with bitter anguish. Puritan Thomas Goodwin told him, you have forgotten the greatest sin of all, the sin of unbelief in refusing to believe in Christ and rely on his atonement and righteousness for, his, for your acceptance with God. So turning to Christ by faith, he was filled with joy and peace in believing. That's what it will be like for you if you're not a believer today and you turn to Christ in faith. Just remember this, God's promises will Come to pass regardless of enemies. So cling to the grace of God. Glory in the name of Christ, not yourself.
As I close, let me just say that on the Mount of Transfiguration, God displayed the glory of Christ with unique vividness. Peter begins to blurt out all sorts of ideas about what they should do as a result. And God's response, Matthew 17, 5, was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Shut up. Keep quiet before him. Be still and know that I am God. Lord, thank you that in these last days you have spoken to us in your son. And it matters not really what we say, but it matters what you have said because your word is of extreme importance. You made heaven and earth. Your throne of dominion is over all earthly powers. And Lord, may you give us grace to humble ourselves before your mighty hand. In Christ's name we pray, amen.